Hey, welcome to the podcast of C3 Los Angeles. I'm Jake Sweetman, and together with my wife, Nicole, we lead this church. We're glad you're here, and we pray that wherever you're tuning in from, that you are encouraged and strengthened by this word. Here's today's message. We're wrapping up our Christmas series. Technically, I'll wrap it up next week on the internet. I already preached that message because it's pre-recorded. So for me, this is a wrap-up. For you next week, it'll, it'll be the wrap-up. Um, but the, the scripture I want to preach to you from today is from the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter t- uh, 2, and uh, we're going to read verses 22 to 35. And the context of this scripture is that Jesus has been born. Uh, so all of the messages so far have been leading up to the birth of Jesus, the pregnancy of Mary. Uh, but today, Jesus is here. He's been, he's been born already. And uh, I don't just mean that, uh, you know, for us. I mean, like, in the story. At this point, he's, he's already been born. And it says this, that when the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, okay, so Joseph and Mary, they're Jewish, um, and so they abide by the law of Moses. And the law of Moses stipulates that the firstborn son of every family is to be uh, especially consecrated to God. So they had to go to Jerusalem, go to the temple, and make an offering to God to consecrate their firstborn son to him. And that's exactly what they're doing. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord. A pair of doves or two young pigeons, which was kind of the lowest level offering that you were permitted to bring. This was for people who were living in poverty and and Joseph and Mary were, they were poor people. They didn't have a lot of money. Um, And yet the king of the world was was born to them. And so they, they bring their humble offering, which God... Um, obviously, graciously accepts. Now, as they're bringing this offering, and here's the, the focus of the story that we're going to look at today. As they're bringing this offering, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. And he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And I'll explain that phrase in a little bit. And the Holy Spirit was on him. Now, it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. So like this, this moment here where Joseph and Mary come into the temple with Jesus, the Messiah, this is a big moment for Simeon. He's been waiting his whole life for this moment. In fact, this is the one thing that God told him, I'm going to gift you with a moment where you're going to get to see the Messiah before you die. When the parents brought in the child Jesus... Actually, back up one, one sentence. I want to highlight this. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took Jesus in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations a light for revelation to the Gentiles. If you're not familiar with that word, Gentile is just a word that means non-Jew. All throughout the Old Testament, the Messiah was prophesied to come, not just for the nation of Israel, but for all the nations of the world. And the glory of your people, Israel. Now the child's father and mother, Joseph and Mary, they marveled at what was said about Jesus. They know, obviously, that Jesus is special. I mean, after all, Mary has conceived Uh, Jesus through a miracle, through the power of the Holy Spirit. So they know that they have a special child, but they don't know all that God is going to do through Jesus. So even as they listen to Simeon talk about Jesus, they're they're marveling at this. And then Simeon blessed them and, and said to Mary, his mother, 
This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against. So some people are going to believe in Jesus. Other people, they're going to reject Jesus because he's a Messiah that comes in an unexpected package. I mean, after all, he was born in a manger. His parents were poverty stricken. They can only make the lowest offering and and this is the king of the world. And some people have a hard time wrapping their mind around that. So that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And a sword, Mary, will pierce your own soul, soul too. Speaking, of course, of Jesus' crucifixion, which would be a devastating experience for Mary to witness. The title of this message, and today's message is uh, almost obscenely simple. And so if you came here today looking to be impressed, I'm sorry, I don't have anything impressive to tell you. But I do know that as the scripture is preached, it has the power to transform your heart and for us to be made new from the inside out. The title of this simple message today is this, One Thing for the Sake of Everything. Our theme for this Christmas season has been everything with nothing. And what that is about is God's redemptive power, being able to work in and through the most humble of people, people who are willing to submit to him and to trust him and to hand their lives over to him. God is able to do everything with nothing. And we've seen this through the life of Joseph, the father, the legal father of the son of God and what it cost him, how he made himself nothing in order that he could participate in the everything that God was accomplishing with Jesus. We've seen it even more with Mary, who made herself totally and completely available to the plan of God, giving even her own body over to God's plan of salvation. Most especially, though, we see it with Jesus, the person about whom the Bible says, although he is God, he made himself nothing. That's what Philippians 2 says. He made himself nothing. He made himself a servant who was born to die for the sake of our salvation. And so the question that I want to help us answer today is a simple question, but I think it's a really important one on this conclusive gathering of 2022. The question is this, how do we make ourselves nothing in order to join in on the everything of God? How do we join Joseph and Mary? More importantly, how do we join Jesus? That's the question. You see, because the offer of the gospel, what the Bible is about, is not you and I having moral examples to follow in the likes of Joseph or or Mary or others. The gospel isn't even about you and I having the moral example of Jesus to follow. If the good news of God is, is nothing more than you and I just having a moral example in Jesus, then it's not very good news. Because that would just be another version of a religious ladder for you and I to climb, but it's a ladder that's not really planted on the ground and it doesn't really reach to the sky. It's just another attempt to manufacture a life that we don't really have on the inside of us and so we have no business saying that we can manufacture it. The glorious gospel of God is infinitely more good news than you and I having an example to follow. Now the glorious gospel of God is that the life of God came to us and implanted himself, not just into human history, but into human hearts. 
That Jesus Christ being the God-man, fully God and fully man, joined himself to humanity so that humanity could join themselves to God. The reconciliation of heaven and earth. The Apostle John says it like this in his gospel in chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. Yet to all who did receive him. What does it mean to receive him? Well, it means this. It means to believe in his name. That he is who he says he is. That he's accomplished what he says he's accomplished. And to those people who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children who are born not of natural descent nor of human decision or a a husband's will, but children who are somehow mysteriously, spiritually, mystically born of God. And being born of God, being children of God is another way of saying that we are wrapped up in God's glorious plan and participating in the everything that he is accomplishing through Jesus Christ. So again, how do we make ourselves nothing like Jesus in order to participate in the everything that God is doing? And the answer, as I've said, is so simple. But it's not necessarily easy. See, the way you and I participate in the everything is by making the everything our only thing. Now, the everything can be summed up in a word, more specifically in a name. And you know the name, even if you're not a Christian here today. The name that I'm about to say is the one and only name, the Bible says, by which mankind may be saved. And that name is Jesus. Jesus is the only mediator between God and man, meaning he's the one who connects the life of God to us and us to the life of God. Jesus is the one through whom God is accomplishing the entirety of his redemptive work. So for us to say that we must make the everything our one thing is to say that we must make Jesus our one thing. Because Jesus is the sole point and purpose of life. I know we may have all come in here today with a lot of points to our life and a lot of purposes to our life, but Jesus is the actual point and purpose of your life. And until we embrace that reality that Jesus is the point of all humanity and the point of all creation, by whom, through whom, for whom all things were made, until we embrace that, our lives will never hit their intended targets. But if you embrace the Lord Jesus Christ, then your life will, in, will hit the target that God intends for you to hit. And that target will be gloriously greater than any target you could have set up for yourself and chased after. And far and away more fulfilling and satisfying for your eternal soul. And this is what the story of, of Simeon shows us. The story of Simeon shows us the wonder that happens in our lives when we give ourselves over to the one thing that truly matters. Again, in Luke 2.25, it says, there was a man in Jerusalem and he was called Simeon. And he was righteous and devout. Now, I don't want you to get confused right then and there because when you read words like righteous and devout, you can then import your own meaning into that and think, well, Simeon must have been perfect. But no, Simeon was a sinful, broken, fallen human just like you and I. But he was righteous and devout because his heart was It was pointed at God. Even though he was imperfect, his desire was to do God's will. And what that looked like for Simeon is that he was waiting for the constellation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was on him. Now that phrase, constellation of Israel, means that he was waiting for God to fulfill his promises. Not not just any promises, but his promise of a Messiah. 
and how God would make all things new through that Messiah. That Messiah would come and rescue and redeem Israel and even the nations of the world. Now, when it says that he was waiting for that, it doesn't mean that he was passively standing by, just kind of doing his own thing while he was waiting on God to do what he had promised. Now, when it says that Simeon was waiting for this, it means that he was looking for it. It means that he was looking forward to it. It's an eager expectation kind of waiting. Now, we might think that because all of Israel at this point in history is living under Roman control, under Roman occupation, we might think that all of Israel would have joined Simeon in this kind of eager waiting for God to do what he had promised to do. But Luke's point in highlighting Simeon's righteousness and devotion to God is actually that he was unusual for living with such a hope. You see, when other religious leaders were happy to try and integrate with Rome for political gain and others uh, all the while had isolated themselves from society and others were trying to usher in Israel's redemption through their own moralism and others still to usher in their redemption through violence, there were people like Simeon whose hope was set on God to do what he had promised to do. Now, it's not that the other groups of people didn't want what God could give. It's not that they didn't want the life of God. It's just that they were looking to other means, other things to supply that life. And maybe the same could be said about any of us here today. It's not that we don't want the abundant life that God alone can give. In fact, if you were to look at our track record, it would show that actually we want nothing more than life. It's just that we keep going to wells that are pretty empty and can't provide the life that we're looking for. You see, your problem is not that you desire too much out of life. Your problem and my problem is that we desire too little. And we keep settling for that which we think is life and that which advertises itself as life, but it's not really life. But if we were to increase our desire to desire the way that God designed you to, you would actually find yourself craving the God of the universe and none of the lesser things that this world has to offer. Simeon is waiting for God to do what he had promised to do and he refused to take the situation into his own hands and to manufacture something lesser for the sake of immediate satisfaction instead of waiting for God to do what he had said. And in that hope was Simeon's devotion, a faith in God that expressed itself through obedience to him and love for him because God was Simeon's one thing. And I think that his posture can speak to us today. Now, unlike Simeon, you and I, um, we're not waiting for the first coming of the Messiah. Unless you're still a practicing Jew and Jews are still waiting for their Messiah because they missed that the Messiah didn't come with impressive garments seated on a throne in a palace. The Messiah came as a humble servant to do for man what nobody else was capable of doing. So the Messiah has already come in Jesus Christ. He's overcome sin and death. He's established his kingdom and empowered his people to announce 
this good news to the world. In other words, he didn't just come to physically redeem one nation. The Messiah came to redeem all people, not just out of political oppression, but to redeem all people out of the oppressive nature of sin and death themselves. In other words, the Messiah who came, the Messiah that Simeon was waiting for, accomplished even more than Simeon expected. Which is often how it goes with God, isn't it? That when you and I can be patient enough to wait on God and to trust in God's plan, God does more than we even expected God to do. And he certainly accomplishes more than what you and I would have been able to manufacture on our own. And that's what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Simeon, like all of his Jewish uh, comrades, is expecting a political king. But he gets something even greater in Jesus, the king of the world, the king of all creation, visible and invisible. And so you and I now, we're, we're waiting for his return when he comes with the fullness of his kingdom and makes, as he promised, all things new. And what makes our waiting active instead of passive, just like Simeon's waiting was active, is that as the church, we join with Jesus. The Bible makes it so clear that you and I are as connected to Jesus today as a branch is connected to a vine. That he is the head of the church and the church is the body and that is not a metaphor to describe our social relationships. That is actually how deeply connected the church is to Jesus Christ. It's an invisible reality, but this is the, this is the nature of the relationship between Jesus and his church. And so we are joining with him in bringing his life into every human heart who wants to welcome him. And in this work, millions and millions of people testify that they have brought from despair to hope. And even something as drastic as to say that I was dead, but now I am alive. And the temptation for any one of us is, of course, a lot like the temptation of the other religious leaders of Simeon's day. While we're waiting, do, do we go towards isolation? And the safety of seclusion? Do we compromise and take on the values of our culture? Does our mantra just become, if we can't beat them, then we might as well join them? Or maybe we do something different. Maybe we turn to legalism as our hope for how to best anchor our soul in God. Maybe our approach to life becomes moralistic, even in a secular way where we have our own set of ideals and we look down on people for not upholding those ideals because it makes us feel better about ourselves. Maybe we do like some inevitably did even in Simeon's day where we say there is no hope actually at all and life is just us and what we make of it. Oh, of course, we don't do any of those things. Those questions were rhetorical in case you didn't pick up on my rhetoric. We don't do any of those things. We do like Simeon did. In fact, if you're a Christian here today, you are even more equipped to do what Simeon did than even Simeon was equipped to do so. Why? Because Simeon was waiting what you went waiting for, what you and I have already received, the loving, joyful, peaceful, powerful life of God has come to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And that means that you and I do not need to turn to any other thing for the eternal life, which our eternal soul craves. No, we turn to Jesus Christ alone. Jesus is still living and he's in our hearts. And in this way, we don't bow to the culture, join the culture or run from the culture. Instead, like the incarnate 
Christ who placed himself into humanity. You and I are faithfully present within the culture, standing as a counterculture, a city on a hill for the world to see and be drawn to as they themselves seek refuge from the world which promises much and delivers little. And maybe some of you are exactly there right now at this juncture of your life. You need refuge from a world and from a way of life that fills you just enough because you always want to keep coming back for more. But you never get full. So you always feel empty. Jesus is the spring of water that isn't just full. He says, I'm actually overflowing. And I will become a well of water on the inside of you so that you will be overflowing with life as well. No longer needy and and looking for other people to satisfy the emptiness in you. No, Jesus fills and overflows so that you become the answer that other people are looking for. Why do we convince ourselves to remain content? To pursue a life that doesn't really provide any level of true satisfaction. Why do you Why have I? It's because we love. We love every answer but the answer, don't we? And all the other answers is what they tell you is that when you get to the end, you can can say that you were the answer for yourself. That you did it. That you pulled yourself up by your bootstraps and you made it happen. You made it work. That might work for some things in life. But it doesn't work when we're talking about ultimate things, when we're talking about eternity, when we're talking about holiness and righteousness and utter perfection, it certainly doesn't work when we're talking about connection to God. God being transcendent is above and apart from all of creation. There's no way to get to him unless he gets to us. And that's what God has done in the person of Jesus Christ. And so you and I should turn to him today. Maybe some of you in this room, you need to do that for the very first time. I mean, you personally, like you were brought up in it. You were raised in the Christian household. You sang the songs, you prayed the prayers. Your, your grandmother gave you money to put in the offering plate as it came by. You, you prayed over your meals as a family, but, but it, it was just the trimmings and the trappings of your family's faith that never became your own. And so you grew up, you moved out, and maybe you found yourself coming to Los Angeles to seek a better life and to pursue a dream. And we are all for your dreams here at C3LA. In fact, next month for the entirety of January, we're going to talk about how Christians should dream. But maybe you're one of those people, those rare people in LA, and you succeeded in the dream. And it was kind of a letdown, wasn't it? Because it didn't do everything that you wanted it to do. And I've been there in that moment, even as a preacher, if I could be really honest with you. I mean, I've gotten off this stage sometime and said to myself, man, I crushed that. (laughs) That was probably far and above one of the best sermons I've ever preached. And then by the time I drive the 20 minutes back to my house, I get home, I feel depressed. Because even the act of preaching is still just another performance. If it's not ultimately grounded in God, I'm serving you. How much more can that be said of all the other things that we're just out and out clear about? Yeah, this is actually about me and what I want to do and what I want to accomplish. And how empty does it leave us feeling? 
When Simeon saw Jesus come into the temple, carried in the arms of his mother, it says that he ran up to, I mean, could you imagine this moment? They'd never met Simeon. They don't know him from Adam. And yet here comes this old guy who runs up, takes Jesus out of Mary's arms and starts cradling Jesus in his arms. And it says he praised God and said, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation. Translation, Simeon's like, God, I can go now. I can die a happy man because I have seen the one thing that I've been living for. What's the one thing that you would be happy to pass from this earth after having seen and accomplished? Friends, can I suggest to you that too often the things for which we are living not only can't usher us into a peaceful and blissful death, they don't even provide us with a peaceful and blissful life. Think about your greatest achievements. The salary package you finally earned, the goal you finally achieved, the dream you finally fulfilled, the house or car you finally bought, the retirement you finally reached, even the person you finally married. You might rightly derive enjoyment from the things, stability from the income, accomplishment from the dreams, tender and wonderful love from your spouse, but nothing and no one in this life provides the eternal satisfaction that your eternal soul craves. That's why rich people still take their own lives. Accomplished people still feel empty. Homeowners still can't wait to take their next vacation in a nice hotel. And people who one day, who are apparently happy, happily married, still get divorced. And my point is not that we shouldn't build wealth, set goals, buy homes, and get married. My point is that if those things are the point of living, then we will have missed the point by the time we reach the point of dying. Jesus alone is the point and the purpose of our lives. And when we make him our one thing, not only do we get him, but we get all the things that he wants to do through us. And even the things that he wants to give to us. But apart from Jesus, our lives are lost. Like grains of sand on the shores of human history. But because Jesus is the point of human history and the point of all creation, That means that with him, our lives are swallowed up in eternal purpose. So if the one thing you're living for is him, nothing about your life is lost and nothing will be wasted. Whether people saw those moments or knew those moments or noticed them isn't the point. What matters is that God sees, God notices, God knows. And if you run the race that he has set before you, which by the way is aimed directly at him, then you will receive his welcome at the finish line. So what does this look like practically? What does it really mean to make Jesus your one thing? Well, absolutely, for starters, it it means embracing the fact that Jesus is your one and only savior. Nobody else is coming. And you can't save yourself. If sin is an ocean, we are all drowning. And so God can either throw us a lifesaver while you and I are being threatened by the violence of those waves to be brought under. And then we've got to reach for the lifesaver and grab a hold of it and keep a hold of it and pull ourselves to safety. Or God can jump in after us. 
because it turns out we're not that good at swimmers and the waves are too strong and we can't reach the lifesaver. And so God jumps in after us and he grabs a hold of us and he keeps a hold of us and he pulls us to safety. The incarnation, which is the doctrine that we celebrate at Christmas time, that word incarnate just means in flesh. It's about how God took on flesh, took on skin and bone and became a man. The incarnation is that God jumped into the water. And when he got in, he got wet. He wasn't immune to the pain of human existence. He didn't, he, you know, like Jesus walked on water. That's not a symbol for how he was untouched by, by, by the stuff of life. In fact, Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, and yet he did not sin. So what that says is that Jesus Christ, as the God-man, actually faced off with sin and overcame it. He endured horrendous trials. I mean, Jesus was more acquainted with grief than we could ever possibly fathom. Even just in the moment of the cross alone, the weight of the sin's world was thrown and thrust upon him. And so he faced off with the gravity of our trials and yet remained faithful to God every step of the way through him. He got wet when he got in the water to come after us. And because of that, he actually empathizes with us in our weakness against sin. Jesus Christ has fought your fight. And so he knows what it takes. And being the great God that he is, that did not for him become license to boast. That became an avenue of empathy. How many people could we say that about who do what you do and succeed where you fail and then do not use that as an opportunity to lord over you? No, Jesus says, actually, it makes me just want to empathize with you all the more. This is the God that we serve. And so Jesus looks at your fight against sin and he empathizes with you in that. The wrongs that we have committed because we just couldn't find the strength to say no to the bad and yes to the good. He empathizes with us in that. It means that he has compassion. And that's not even the most transformative part. As much as the compassion of Jesus is deeper and more long-suffering than any other compassion we could ever come face to face with, it must be pointed out that Jesus does not stop at compassion. He doesn't just sit with us in our sinful brokenness and pity us. That might be nice for a moment, but it wouldn't actually be very good news. That scripture we just read says that he is our high priest who empathizes with us. And the role of the high priest is not to pity you for your sin. The role of the high priest is to atone for your sin. And that's what Jesus does. He cleanses you of your sin. He robs sin of its power to separate you from God. He reconnects and reconciles you to the God of the universe. This is what Jesus does. If you want Jesus to be your one thing, Please understand that it does not begin with what you can do for him. It begins and carries on with what he has done for you. You want Jesus to be your one thing. You have to embrace him as the savior of your life. Better said, you have to allow him to embrace you. The second thing, and I only have two points, so I'm almost done. Hopefully this is showing you the beauty of Jesus today. 
Second thing it means to make Jesus your one thing is that you have to understand that Jesus is our Lord. God's intention in Jesus Christ was never just to be your savior. He wants to be your Lord. In fact, can I be really honest with you? There is no Christianity apart from the Lordship of Jesus Christ. It simply does not exist. He has no interest in just being your divine rescuer and then scooting you along to let you kind of make it up as you go along. He only has interest in being the Lord of your life. And that message can grate against our hearts because our hearts have been so well trained to believe that the only true Lord of our lives is ourselves. But with ourselves as Lord, we are left with nothing more than our own personal tastes and our own personal desires to govern our lives. And if you want to know what it looks like for, for, for life to be governed by personal taste and personal desire, just take a day and read the news. It doesn't look great. And we're so good, aren't we, at kind of looking at other people who are doing worse than us, and then by comparison, we'd be like, man, I'm actually doing pretty good. That's the thing about comparison is like when you compare down, you, you start to feel pretty great. But then you make that terrible mistake of comparing up. You know, because there's some people who are just objectively are doing better than us, aren't they? Like they're just nicer. You know, they're just holistically more generous. Some of them aren't even Christians. And yet you work with them and you meet them like they're just, they're just a better human being than I am. And you make that comparison like, what the heck, man? Like, and now so you don't feel super great anymore. Well, if like you can feel that way by comparing yourself to your coworker, just take a moment and compare yourself to Christ. You and I should not make the mistake of, of forgetting the fact that our hearts have been corrupted by sin. And because of that, we're never going to be able to direct ourselves towards truly abundant life. We need the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And when we resist his lordship, we actually miss the gospel entirely. Because the gospel is that God in Christ joined himself to us. So that a door was open for us to join ourselves to him. His life becomes our life. Look at Colossians 3.3. 3. This just says it as plainly as it can be said. For you died. That's, that's the truth of every believer. Your, your, your life is you, you, it's basically as good as dead. And actually, your real life now is hidden with Christ in God. And that's what lordship looks like, is for your life to be so connected to the life of Christ. You see, the gospel is not that God sent gifts to you in the mail so that you could like unwrap the packaging and do your best not to lose or damage them. That wouldn't be very good news. If human history shows us anything up until the arrival of Jesus, we're not very good at taking care of the gifts of God. And so what, what true religion is, what Christianity is, is that God, he didn't mail you a gift. He sent himself. He is the gift. Salvation is not an independently existent thing that exists separate from God. Salvation is Jesus Christ. It's not just a prayer that you pray. It's a person that you know. 
The forgiveness of sins is not something that God just has on offer to you that's like set on a table that you can like kind of take as you like. Now the forgiveness of sins is the person of Jesus Christ and when you join yourself to the Holy One, you yourself become holy. How can there be any more sin left in you if you have become holy? In Jesus Christ, your sin is dead in the water. When God jumped in after you and grabbed a hold of you and pulled you out of that water and onto the boat, he left your sin in the water and it's not coming back. Jesus Christ has cleansed you totally and completely. That is the good news of the Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And he has paid that penalty for every single person in this room. Have you received Jesus Christ as your Lord, as the ruler and the governor of your life? Because God is Trinity, He's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that means that the life of God, the love, the joy, the peace, the freedom, the power of God, all these things are, are dynamic. God's life is not static, it's not isolated. Mysteriously, He is Trinity. Go try, wrap your head around that one. If you figure it out, come back and tell me. It's a mystery. That he has three indivisible yet still distinct persons. But because that is the nature of God as shown to us through the scriptures, that means that God has always existed in, in community. He has always existed as family. Which means that his life is so dynamic. So when you make Jesus the Lord of your life, what you are doing is you are leaving behind the slog and the grind of an existence that is all around you. And you step into the dynamic, beautifully adventurous life that is all about God and all about others. Your life, instead of being inward, becomes outward. You say, well, what does that look like? I don't really know. Because that's the point of an adventure, isn't it? The point of an adventure isn't that you know what's around every single corner. The point of an adventure is that you don't know what's coming. But what I can tell you is that when you make Jesus Christ your one thing, whatever He has for you around that next corner, whether it be triumph or trial, it is absolutely overflowing with purpose. His plan for your life will come to pass if you make Him your sole reason for waking up in the morning. Everything else finds its purpose when He becomes your purpose. All of the other things that are beautiful and glorious about life, they become infinitely more beautiful and more glorious because they are no longer grounded in you, they're grounded in Him. Oh, my favorite part of the Simeon story. When Joseph and Mary showed up to the temple, it says that the Holy Spirit prompted Simeon to go to the temple at that moment. He was moved by the Holy Spirit to go into the temple courts. Simeon had made his whole life about trusting God. He'd made his whole life about seeing God's plan of salvation. So on the day that that plan was getting carried into the temple, the Holy Spirit prompted Simeon to be there. And Simeon got to see what he'd been hoping for his whole life long. In other words, God got him where he needed to be because he'd made his life about God. Simeon didn't have to self-direct. He didn't have to perfectly map things out for himself because he trusted in God and refused to compromise, refused to isolate. God got him where he needed to be. And then he held the infant Jesus in his hands. He didn't get to see the whole thing. 
You and I, we're not going to see the whole work of God in our generation. We're probably just going to get a glimpse, just a small part. In fact, it reminds me of Joseph of Arimathea. He's another man. The Bible says that he was looking for the kingdom of God. It's kind of a similar phrase to waiting for the consolation of Israel like Simeon was. Joseph, he came 30 years later. He he was kind of a a distant disciple of Jesus because he was too afraid of being persecuted by the religious leaders. But on the day where it really mattered, he was the only guy who had the gall to go to Pilate and ask Pilate for permission to take Jesus' broken body down from the cross. So Joseph of Arimathea, who was a distant disciple, all of a sudden got close while Jesus' usual close disciples were distant. And he took the body of Jesus down from that cross and he gave Jesus an honorable burial. Now he wasn't there when Simeon was there. He didn't get to bless the Lord and hold baby Jesus in his arms. But man, he was there in another really cool moment. How long did Joseph live? I don't know. Did he get to see the church expand throughout the entirety of the Roman Empire? I have no idea. But I know that he got to be a part of one moment just like Simeon got to be a part of one moment. Simeon's at the start. Joseph's somewhere right in the middle. And that's what happens when you make God your one thing. I don't want to overpromise you. You're probably not going to see everything. But man, that small thing will be so much like everything. You see, there are people in this world who accomplish really big things and it it still doesn't provide the satisfaction that they thought it would. The glory of God is that even in the little things, you can be like Simeon and go, yeah, I can go now. That That was enough. You can be like Joseph. And God will ensure that you live that kind of life. A life of true significance and purpose. It's like the Apostle Paul, who decades later, even after Joseph of Arimathea, he'd been converted to Christianity, and his greatest desire was to go and preach the gospel in Rome. That's where Paul really wanted to go. He preached the gospel all around the Roman Empire, but he never got to go to Rome itself, which is the most significant city in the Roman Empire. And so he's getting towards the end of his life, and he really wants to go to Rome, but he also has this responsibility to go to Jerusalem and bring an offering to the believers there because they were struck with poverty and with famine. And so Paul obeys God, and he goes to Jerusalem, and he brings this offering to the church there. But while he was there, wouldn't you know it, he gets arrested by by the Romans and he's held in Roman custody for months on end and then it gets to the point where he's able to appeal his trial to Caesar in Rome and because he's a Roman citizen they had no other choice but to honor his appeal so now Paul who's carried this lifelong desire to always preach the gospel in Rome is getting an all expenses paid trip on a Roman boat getting to go to the city that he's always wanted to go to and God got him there Because when Jesus is your one thing, you always get you to where you need to be for him to fulfill his plan and his purpose for your life. And as I said earlier, Simeon was a fallen human, sinful like the rest of us. He's not some majestic hero. because he was devoted doesn't mean he was perfect just because he was waiting for God doesn't mean that he didn't get distracted 
make mistakes along the way. And in the same way, you making your life about Jesus doesn't mean that you're not going to trip up along the way. You could make a choice here today to be really serious about God, maybe even a choice to give your life to Him for the first time, and you'll still go out this week and you'll, you'll mess up, and so will I. But that's okay. Because God can do a lot with a little, but He can do everything with nothing. And so if you and I will be willing just to keep humbling ourselves and say, God, we believe in your name, we trust you, that God will help us pick up all the broken pieces that we cause and just build a beautiful life. And you won't even be doing it alone, we'll be doing it together. And your life will be pregnant with purpose. Nobody and no one else can offer that to you. God will bring you places that you wouldn't believe. I have failed him 10 million times. And even that is a conservative estimate. And God has brought me into places that I cannot believe. And made me, made me to participate in his plan in some, just objectively speaking, really beautiful ways. I mean, I get to be a, a part of God's plan of salvation for humanity. Are you kidding me? What a wonderful and glorious thing my life would have eternal purpose that I would be more than ashes and more than dust but the eternal God would make his home on the inside of me not just so that I would have the hope of eternity but so that I would be a part of his plan of being bringing his eternal kingdom into the hearts of people in the here and now the reason that I get to do that the reason that you get to live that way is because Jesus made us his one thing when he left heaven, he gave up everything in order to pursue one thing, our salvation. And so when we consider that, it just kind of seems silly, doesn't it? Not to make him our one thing for the sake of everything. You've been listening to the C3 Los Angeles podcast. If you found today's message helpful, we encourage you to share it with a friend and consider rating it. If you'd like more information about our church or details on how to get connected to a neighborhood group, head to c3losangeles.com. We love you. Thanks for tuning in with us.